We're going to look in Isaiah chapter 48 tonight. Isaiah chapter 48. A prophecy for our prophet. Isaiah 48 verse 16. Come near to me. Hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit. Who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. And your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Isaiah 48, a prophecy for our prophet. Most of Isaiah chapter 48 is devoted to warnings concerning the rise of the kingdom of Babylon and how that they would soon come and their armies would come and the people of Judah and of Jerusalem then were going to be taken away captive. It was a horrible time of judgment that was approaching. And uh, God would use the prophet Isaiah to write some very, very specific prophecies about what was about to happen. He would even call King Cyrus by name. Long, long before Cyrus ever assumed power. I mean, Cyrus was a Persian king. So we're talking about somebody who would come along even after Babylon. Decades, perhaps even as much as a hundred years or more before Cyrus would assume power, God would call him by name. I mean, put ourselves today in that situation. Imagine if someone in the United States of America unearthed an absolutely authentic manuscript that was written in 1900 and addressed to President Joe Biden. What would you think? Obviously, somebody had some advanced knowledge. And that was exactly the case with Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah's prophecies are so specific that it has prompted many Bible students over the years to come to the conclusion that there was actually two Isaiahs, two different prophecies. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. In fact, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1 begins with this particular statement. And by the way, my teacher in an old prophecy class back in seminary many years ago made us memorize this verse because he wanted us to know there was not two Isaiahs. Uh, that Isaiah the prophet under inspiration set the timing of this. And I found out really quickly that he intended for us to be able to quote this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, long before the Babylonian captivity, long before there was a Cyrus, long before any of those things were going to play out, God wrote them down through the prophet Isaiah. Not only that, but in our text tonight, we're going to see God telling them why he had done this. He's, he was just telling them, I, I have done this to you. I've not spoken in secret from the beginning, but from the time that it was, he said, I was there. 
And so I'm, I'm giving you this, and, and he's even going to tell them why that he does this. Now, as we go along through this, and I'll set the context for you tonight as we, as we look at these preceding passages, but we're going to get to that place then where God begins to speak to them about things that were for their profit. Things that were the, for their profit. These were things then, this was a message that God gave them. And in fact, we're going to see that God gives them four things that they were to do that were going to help them. In this very critical time of impending judgment, God's going to give them four things for their profit. And we'll see those in a moment. But uh, let's set the scene a bit. In verse 1, we're going to see the claim of the people. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. And so we see right away that the people are saying something. They're making a claim for themselves. And God would say they swear by the name of the Lord. Now, unfortunately, in our day today, we hear way too many people swearing in the name of the Lord. Uh, and I'm talking about cussing, as we like to call it, swearing in the sense of they use the name of God in a curse and in a cuss. It's a horrible thing to do to the sacred name of God. I often think of the Jewish people and their reverence for the name of God. And to this day, Orthodox Jews will not write out the, even the English word God. They won't do it. They'll put an underline between G and D and leave the O out because they're afraid that using God's name or writing God's name uh, would in somehow violate that commandment. Uh, they would not speak the name Jehovah aloud. They would not do it. Uh, they would substitute the word Elohim. Uh, the name commonly translated Lord in the Old Testament. Uh, they just didn't feel comfortable using the name of God. You see how many people so casually mention God today and call on Him, use His name. Uh, you need to think about it. God said, you swear by the name of the Lord and you make mention of the God of Israel. I thought of two phrases this week as I studied this passage. One nation under God. And in God we trust. You swear by the name of the Lord and you make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. It is possible, you see, to recite those words and make mention of God, but not really mean them. To say it, but it not be in truth. To say it, but not live by it. That was certainly happening in the days of Isaiah. They were saying one thing. The claim of the people, how they saw themselves. In a way... I think we could see tonight that just by looking at this passage and preceding passages in a way, I think these people honestly 
they, they, they had such a problem that they were saying these things and they really thought they believed them. They really thought they were living by them. We are leaning on the God of Israel. We're, we're swearing by Him. We are from the wellsprings of Judah. That is, we have sprung from, uh, from Judah. We are descended from Abraham and Isaac and, and, and Jacob. We're, we're these people. We're called by His name and we swear by His name. We lean on Him. But God saw a different picture. So if we see the claim of the people, then we'll see very quickly the condition of the people, what they claim for themselves. We're God's people. We are trusting in Him. We're calling upon Him. We are leaning upon Him. We're counting on Him. Uh, We are uh, devoted to the city of Jerusalem. We are trusting in God. But then God speaks of their condition. What was actually true of them. What they claimed for themselves. And maybe even truly believed it. But then what they really were. God says it. Verse 3. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth. And I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them. And they came to pass. Because I knew that you were obstinate. And your neck was an iron sinew, and your brow bronze. Three things. You were obstinate. That would speak of how hard-hearted they were. Hard-hearted, obstinate. Rebellious would be another word that goes in this. Their hearts were hardened. Their neck then was stiff. And that's something that God spoke of Israel over and over again. You stiff-necked people. Now, I, did not, I was not raised up uh, plowing with horses. I've never done it. Or with any other animal. But I have read about it. <laughs> and I know that there were some animals who had a tendency to resist. When you were pulling them in one direction, they would fight against that and try to go the other way. And they would stiffen their neck uh, so that though they were supposed to gee, they were trying to haul. I guess that's, I don't know really which way that was supposed to be. Uh, But I know that gee was one way and haul was the other. And whichever way that they were trying to be pulled in, they would resist. Hard-hearted. Resisting. Hard, stiff-necked. And the last one. Hard-headed. Your brow is a bronze. And so while they would say of themselves, Oh, we we trust in the Lord. We believe in the Lord. We're counting on God. We, We love Jerusalem. And we are going to count on God. The Lord of hosts, they called on Him. They expressed their devotion to Him. But God said it's not in truth, it's not in righteousness, because in fact, you are obstinate and stiff-necked. Everything I I try to get you to do, you resist, and you're hard-headed. Now, when we think about this threefold description that God uses of people, we can bring this directly over to us and just be warned for a moment about how dangerous it is 
when we become hard-hearted, stiff-necked, and hard-headed. Either one of those three things can bring catastrophe into our life. Especially in a time of great danger. I mean, they were heading into a time of divine judgment and where God was telling them to do. It was very important that they listen to that and heed His word. He's going to talk about that in a few moments. Where when God was trying to guide them, it was very important that they go where God would be leading them to go and not be resistant and hard-headed. Hmm. Uh, a lot of us have... Uh, an extra dose of being hard-headed. I remember some years ago, there was a big sign up right as you went over the Arkansas River, and every time I saw it, it made me mad. It didn't really make me mad, but I, I, I was not unhappy when it disappeared because the sign cited that this year so many men, that so many thousand men in America will die of stubbornness. That's what it said. You might remember that sign. I certainly remember it. I don't remember the exact number, but I remember the sentiment. Men dying of stubbornness. There's a lot of people in America tonight that are dying of stubbornness. Won't go to the doctor. Won't get help. Stubbornness. Either one of these things can be dangerous, but all of them together was creating a catastrophic situation. So we see the people then who made a claim how they saw themselves, but then we see their condition as God then describes how they actually were. And there was a wide disparity between how they saw themselves and how God sees them. Then there's the cause of God. Verse 9, For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. Isn't that a great statement? For my name's sake, I will defer my anger, and for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another? Now, you know that silver is refined in order to increase its value. Uh, but God says, I'm not refining you as silver. That is, that what I'm doing right now, I'm not doing so much for your benefit. This is an intriguing passage. Because I'm afraid that modern Christianity has gotten to the point where we really believe that uh, God does everything He does just for us. And we forgot that God does what He does for His own glory. God can be glorified. He said, I have, I'm not refining you as silver so that I can increase your value or, or make you better or make you look better or make you uh, more precious. No. He said, what I am doing to you is to test you in the furnace of affliction. Now, the point that he's going to make to them is, of course, that they're going to come through the fire. Uh, yes, they would be better off because of it. Yes, that's a benefit that was going to happen, but that wasn't the cause. God was going to bring them through the fire for his own glory. For my praise, he says, I will restrain it for you for my name's sake, for my own sake, for my own sake. Four times. 
four times. Why should my name be profaned and I'll not give my glory to another? And we'd see then how that God would look at this people and he would say, you know, it's not so much that I'm out to bless you. This is an intriguing passage, folks. But I am out to show my glory in you. And from time to time, you and I, certainly I do, and I hope that you do as well, we'll all think about and reflect on the fact that, and I preached this this morning, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that our life, our actions, our word, our testimony, our conduct, the way we live our lives, the way that we carry on our business, Yes, students, the, the way we do our work at school, the way we interact with our teachers and interact with our friends and others at school. Yes, uh, businessmen, the way that we treat our employees. Yes, employees, the way that you treat your boss and your fellow employees. That In all of these things, there is something greater in this in our hearts than just our own benefit or what it's going to do for me. Because as a child of God, always in my mind, is that I want to give God glory. That God would be glorified. Paul would write to the church at Philippi, and he'd say, you you pray for me, that now, as always, that Christ would be magnified in my life. Whether it be by my life or by my death. Live or die, you pray this one thing, that Christ would be magnified. That Christ would be larger in me. That Christ would be more readily visible in me. That Christ would grow and be enlarged in me. That the kingdom would be enlarged through me. That other people would more easily see Christ in me. Something great for us to pray for ourselves. Amen. That's something great for you to pray for me. That's something great for us to pray for our church. That Christ would be magnified in us. That he would grow, be larger, more easily seen, glorified in us. And so the chapter begins with the people's time of self-assessment. And boy, did they miss that. Then they were assessed by God, how God saw them. Hard-hearted, stiff-necked, and hard-headed. But then there's the call of God. As God then calls His people to do four things in in this passage that are designed for their profit, for their help. It's one thing to serve God when... We're on the mountaintop and everything's going well. It's another thing to serve God when their world was crumbling down around them. And that's, that's where they were headed into. And God was telling them about it before it happened. Before it happened. And in fact, he does this because he said, you know, if I hadn't have done this, you would have said my idol did this. I'm a, you'd have blamed it on some false god. You'd have said, well, you know, the gods are unhappy with us. 
Or I would have told you this and you'd say, oh, I already knew this. Oh, yeah, we knew all about this. We, we've got all, we know everything. We, we know, we, we know. And so God put it down in his book long before it happened. So nobody could take credit for what was going to happen but him. They couldn't blame this on anybody or anything. This was God at work. And as he looked at this time, he says, then this is what needs to happen. And four things, four actions. They're very plain, very simple. The first one is listen. Listen, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, what do they do? They stand up together. The imagery is of God calling out to a group of people and they would immediately then stand to attention. They'd stand up. They'd respond. When I call to the heavens, they stand up and respond. When I call out to the the firmament, uh, anything, they, they all stand together to the foundations of the earth, to the highest of the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up. To find out what it is that I want them to do. We could learn a lot from the dirt. We could learn a lot from the stars. To listen to the word of God. Listen to what God would tell us to do. You see, he would speak to Jacob and call him my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. I'm the one who's done all of this. Therefore, God was saying to them, I am qualified. (laughs) I have all of the qualifications that I need to speak. And you listen to what I'm telling you. It's so hard in our world today to know who to listen to anymore. And uh, I guess in a way it always has been. Uh, We want to know what our doctor's credentials are. We want to know what our teacher's credentials are. We want to check and see if people know what they're talking about. Why should I listen to you? Well, let's talk about God's credentials. Here it is. Are you ready? God says, I'm the first and the last. (laughs) Uh, Beginning and end, that's me. I put it all in place. I've laid it all together. Listen to me. Listen to me. These are my qualifications. Listen. Listen. In a time like this, like Isaiah's day, and in a time like our day, folks, we need to listen to God. We need to listen to God. Secondly, verse 14, all of you assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon and his arms shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him and his way will prosper. There were going to be multitudes of false prophets who would tell them that they were going to be delivered and that Babylon was not going to succeed and that the city of Jerusalem would not fall. And 
would stand. But God tells them, I'm going to work my pleasure in Babylon and on the Chaldeans. I'm going to bring them and his way will prosper. Uh, But then there'll be a time also when God's arm will be against them. Babylon itself would fall. And it would fall catastrophically. It would fall overnight. You remember the famous handwriting on the wall. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and up Harrison. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your kingdom is taken from you and given to another. And the armies of the Persians were coming into the city even while that party was going on. God said, my hand will be against the Babylonians. I'm raising them up and they're going to be successful, but then my hand will also be against them. So in the midst of all of this thing that's happening, what did he tell them to do? Not only to listen, but also assemble and listen. Every time I look out over this crowd here at Faith Baptist Church, I thank God for all of you being here because I know how important it is for you to be here. Some of you that can't be here tonight, you're watching from home. And I thank God for you too, because it's important for you to be here. You see, it's tough for us when we think we're the only one. A lot of times we get what I like to call the Elijah syndrome. Remember that? When Elijah was standing for for God on Mount Carmel, and all the prophets of Baal came, and all of them got killed... And the sacrifice got burned up from God as a fire fell from heaven and licked up all the water. And after three years of drought, they brought all that water and poured it out on the sacrifice. How precious was that? And the fire fell and it consumed the animals and it licked up all of the water. And the prophets of Baal all died. And and Jezebel just said, tomorrow I'm going to kill you, son. (laughs) That's what they said. And amazingly, Elijah did what? He ran. It stood so strong, and then all of a sudden he runs. When God finally showed up, it was not in the wind and not in the earthquake, but the still small voice. What doest thou hear, Elijah? That's King James or English for what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Now, Elijah wasn't bashful. We have to give him that because he said it right up front. He said, Lord, uh, man, they've torn down your altars. They've killed the prophets, and I'm the only one you've got left on the field. And they're trying to kill me. (laughs) That's what I'm doing here. I'm the only one you've got left. Listen, when Elijah thought he was the only one standing for God, he was in a dangerous position. He lost his... His fire, and we understand why it was that way. I mean, after all, he stood on Mount Carmel and gave the invitation. And after 437 verses of just as I am, nobody had come. I'm the only one you've got left, God, and I'm all alone. They're trying to kill me. It's a dangerous place for God's people to be in. Times like this, folk, we need to assemble in here. Not just to hear, but we need to assemble in here. We need to be able to look around and say, oh yeah, I'm not the only one. 
God still got a lot of players on the field in Cabot, Arkansas. And you know what? Faith Baptist is not even the only church that God's got in this town. We might like to think so, but it's not. There's other churches just like us. And there's people going there too. And they're standing for God. And they're listening to God. And they want to hear from God too. And they believe the Bible. And we're not the only ones. We're not alone. And in one level we know that. But there's another level that comes to us when we assemble together. And God does great things for us. We need this. The writer of the book of Hebrews told us that long ago. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. This is a matter of some And so much the more, as you see the day approaching, as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ, we need to assemble more, not less. I've been thinking about starting church on Friday night. I ain't kidding a bit. (laughs) Well, I I am kidding, yeah. We need it more, not less. Assemble yourselves. Listen to me. Assemble yourselves in here. Gather together so that not only you, but you can join with all of those other people who also honor the Word of God and who want to hear. You assemble together and hear. You listen and you assemble together and hear. Verse 16, number 3. Come near to me. And God tells them again, hear this. Come near. Now, now, we know that. It's that, it's that expression we make when we're, we're going to say something. Come, come here. Come here. I want you to hear this. <laughs> With your kids, you might, you might grab them right here. Come here. I want you to hear. This thing works really good, too. Come here. I want you to hear. It's not going to kill them if you do that. They won't die from having their ear pulled. If you did, I'd have been dead a long time ago. Come here. I want you to hear this. But I've not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was I was there. Now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. I love the way the King James English puts that. Oh, that thou wouldest have hearkened unto me. Then had thy peace been like a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. You come near to me, God says. You hear what I'm about to say. If you would have listened to me before, this wouldn't have happened to you. I ask you a question tonight, brothers and sisters in Christ. Could God in heaven say that to America tonight? I believe he could. If you would have listened to me, you wouldn't be in the mess you're in. If you would have listened to me, then your righteousness would be like the waves of the sea that just keep on going and going and going and going. If you would have listened to me, your peace would have been like a river. Your descendants would have been like the sand of the sea and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name 
would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. But thank God that wasn't all God said because he also gave them that glorious attention or invitation. Come near to me. Come near to me. James said it in James chapter 4 and verse 8, Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh unto you. Isaiah, in that great time of, of, of the beginning of this prophecy, was given that glorious invitation. Come now, God said, and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Come now, come now, God said. Come now, come near to me. It's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too late. Come not to me. If you would have listened, you wouldn't be in the shape that you're in. But it's not too late. Come now to me. Come nigh. Come near. But not only do we come near to God, and you see these four things, very simple. Listen to me. Assemble yourselves in here. Come near to me. One more thing, verse 20. Go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. With the voice of singing, declare, proclaim this, utter it in the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock. And the waters gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Go forth from Babylon. Now you remember, I, I, I told you that Isaiah was writing this a long time before these events played out. So when Israel was given the opportunity then to leave Babylon and go back to their country, every single one of the Jews packed up and left, didn't they? No. They didn't. Mm -mm. There was a small group that left Babylon and went back. Then another group would leave and go back. But there was a bunch of them that didn't go at all. They stayed in Babylon. God had warned them, though. He told them ahead of time, get out of here. Go forth. There was a part then of, of coming close to God that was going to involve, there'd come a time when it would involve then leaving Babylon, getting out of there, getting away from there, flee from the Chaldeans. And God would give them then that crushing word in verse 22, there is no peace for the wicked. His hand was going to be on the Babylonians. His hand would be on the Chaldeans. His hand would be against the Persians. There was not going to be any peace for them there. The peace for them was going to be in the city of peace. It was time for them to get out of there. When the opportunity came, they needed to take it. And a whole lot then of what God was saying when He said, Listen, oh by the way, assemble and listen. Oh yeah, come near to me and listen. What is it you're going to say? Get out of here when you can. Don't stay. Come near to me. Get out of here when you can. But, of course, they didn't. 
We can't just look at this and leave it in the Old Testament because, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17 still says, Come out from among them and be you separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I'll receive you. There's no rest for the wicked. And there's a time for us as God's people to draw a clear distinction, to make sure there's some distance between us and those people who are living the way they're living. Some of those old comedy routines that you used to see, you know, when somebody would start lifting up their name and saying something really silly and everybody would kind of ease away from them a little bit. Don't want to stand too close to that guy. Him saying what he's saying, doing what he's doing. Well, bad things were going to happen to Babylon. And there's bad things that's going to happen in our world as well. We don't want to be in the middle of it when it all breaks out. Come out from among them. So as we come near to God, there's also a place for coming out. And I use that word very specifically tonight because I understand that another section of of the world has chosen that language to use. But long before they used it the way they're using it, God said, come out. Come out from among them and be you separate, saith the Lord, and I will receive you. Revelation 18 and 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. And you know who the her was in that passage? Babylon. Revelation 18. God is still talking about Babylon and come out of her. Interesting, huh? Four things tonight then that God tells us for our prophet, a prophecy for our prophet. In a time of, uh, of, of judgment, a time of catastrophe that was about to happen, long before it ever happened, God, God wrote this down. And he said, listen, oh, oh, by the way, come together and listen, oh, Come near to me and hear. What do you do? Come out. Come out from among them. It's a message that I think can profit us tonight in the days and times in which we live. So that we be a people then who understand that it's not just all about us. It's not just about God doing things. God blesses us all the time, but... God's program is a lot bigger than just to bless you and me. He does bless us, but He's got a much bigger program. And more important it is than for me to be blessed or for you to be blessed, it is important that we give God glory in the world in which we live. We do that, first of all, by receiving Him as our Savior, by following Him in baptism, by doing the things that He tells us to do in this passage, to listen to assemble, to draw near to Him, and to come out from the world. Let's stand together, please.